I apologize for reading the introduction because uh, Mr. Dolan's resume is so extensive I couldn't possibly remember it. Um, Mr. Dolan was born in New York and attended Brown University, received a master's degree in environmental management from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and a PhD in environmental policy and planning from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So he's sort of a hometown boy. He's worked as a program manager at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, an environmental consultant for Booz Allen Hamilton, and Environmental Resources Limited, a fisheries policy analyst at the National Marine Fisheries Service, and a technical writer for the National Transportation Safety Board. He was a Pew Research Fellow at Harvard Law School and an American Association for the Advancement of Science Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellow at Business Week. Mr. Dolan is the author of Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America, which was chosen as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by the Los Angeles Times and the Boston Globe, and also won the 2007 John Lyman Award for U.S. Maritime History. Today, Mr. Dolan will share excerpts from Brilliant Beacons, which vividly, vividly reframes America's history through the development of its lighthouses. So please welcoming Join me in welcoming Mr. Dolan to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. And thank you for coming here. I remember this place very fondly. When I was a grad student at MIT for two years, I think it was, one or two years I was a member here. And I can't remember which floor it was, but there's a floor up above us that I used to spend many days reading old and musty books trying to finish my PhD dissertation. Now this summer is a very significant milestone in the history of America's lighthouses. It's the 300th anniversary of Boston Lighthouse out in the mouth of Boston Harbor, and it's an anniversary that is well worth celebrating. This image is an engraving from 1729, and it shows a British armed sloop moored out in front of Boston Lighthouse. For 300 years, America's lighthouses have kept countless ships from wrecking, saved untold lives, and contributed mightily to the growth and prosperity of the nation. Brilliant Beacons tells the fascinating story of these soaring coastal sentinels. Now, one of the questions I'm asked most often is, how do I come up with the ideas for my books? Usually, I go off for a couple of months and I read a ton of books, and if I find something that intrigues me and hasn't already been written to death, I talk to my literary agent, and if I can convince him, we then pitch it to my longtime editor at W.W. Norton to see if they want to offer a book contract. Now, this sounds like an incredibly neat process, but it's very messy. There are often months of anguish searching uh, before I find a topic that I'm really excited about. And then there's absolutely no guarantee that my editor will like it. In fact, a few topics that I wanted to pursue have been shot down at that stage. Now, with Brilliant Beacons, however, the process was entirely reversed. I just finished a book called When America First Met China, which is about the China trade. And actually, behind this screen is a portrait of Thomas Hansed Perkins, who is profiled in that book. I think that's an interesting coincidence. But after finishing that book, I was flailing around for another book topic when my agent got an email from my editor. The editor said he had just had lunch with the head of sales at W.W. Norton, and they wanted to know if I was interested in writing a book on America's lighthouses. I was intrigued, but I said I had absolutely no idea if I want to write such a book, because at that point, I had only seen two lighthouses closer than about 200 feet. One is the lighthouse in Marblehead, where I live now, and the other one is the Nopska Lighthouse uh, in Woods Hole, when I used to work at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, I used to run by it every evening after work. So I asked for about a month to think it over, and I read a ton of books, and I was absolutely floored. I had no idea that lighthouses were so interesting and that you could weave so many threads of the American experience into a book on lighthouses. Far from being just a story about lighthouses, it was a story about colonial commerce, nation building, war, technological innovation, engineering feats, disasters, tragedy, inspiring determination, as well as art, poetry, 
and hope. And that was just in one chapter. So I knew this was a book that I wanted to write. And after about a month, uh, another month or two, I submitted a proposal and it was accepted. And about two years later, I handed in the manuscript to my editor. I just want to let you know this is the 12th book that I've written. And every single book that I've written, I picked a topic that I know nothing about before I start working on it. Now, you may be thinking that's probably because I don't know much about anything. But that's not necessarily true. It's more that I want to stay excited. I know I have to work on this book for a couple of years. And I want to stay excited while I'm doing that. And the best way to do that is to select a topic I don't know much about. And hopefully some of the excitement that I feel and the revelations that come week after week will make their way onto the page. Now, to give you a better idea why I was so excited to write this book and give you a sense of its breadth, I am going to read a short excerpt from the introduction, which I think captures the scope of the book extremely well. The history of America's lighthouses is wondrously wide-ranging. It's about the far-sighted colonies that built the first lighthouses on the East Coast to welcome commerce to their shores, embracing the founding of the nation and its dramatic expansion across the continent. When the inaugural Federal Congress convened in 1789, one of the first issues it took up was whether the federal government or the states would be in charge of lighthouses. And in one of its earliest acts, Congress made lighthouses a federal concern. From that point forward, as the country grew, so too did the number of lighthouses, creating a necklace of beacons and literally lighting the way for the settlement of new territories and states. Brilliant Beacons is also a history of government, ineptitude, and international competition. For a long time, America's lighthouses were vastly inferior to those of Great Britain and France, even though many stubborn and misguided American officials refused to concede that fact. Only by emulating its cross-ocean rivals was America able to elevate its lighthouse system from one mired in mediocrity to one that was among the best in the world. The book is likewise a history of lighting innovation. Lighthouse illuminance changed dramatically over time, running the gamut from whale, lard, and vegetable oil to kerosene, acetylene, and finally, electricity. Similarly, crude lamps gave way to more sophisticated ones, and reflectors that did a poor job of projecting the light were replaced by the crown jewels of lighthouse illumination, Fresnel lenses, which not only increased the intensity of the light, but also became one of the most important and strikingly beautiful inventions of the 19th century. Most of these elegant lenses have since been supplanted by modern optics, which are far less arresting to the eye, yet still effective in casting refulgent beams toward the horizon. Lighthouses have undergone substantial structural changes. While early towers are made of wood or rubble stone, in later years, cut stone, bricks, iron, steel, and reinforced concrete. And I'll just stop here for a second. I was out in California to give a talk, and I went to this lighthouse on a day when it was raining and the winds were about 40 miles an hour. I climbed up to the top of the lighthouse. I looked over the side, and I realized after a long life of not fearing heights, I suddenly have a new respect and fear for heights. It was uh, quite an experience. And even aluminum became the materials of choice. This lighthouse is one of the last ones ever built in the United States in the early 1960s, and it's unique for two reasons. Not, well, three, unusual shape, but also it's the only lighthouse in the country that has an elevator, and it's the only one with air conditioning. <laughs> now, although all lighthouses required skill to build, a few pose such significant challenges they are truly marvels of engineering serving as testaments to human ingenuity. America's military history is one in which lighthouses have played a crucial role. They served as lookout towers in many conflicts, but during the American Revolution and the Civil War, they also became key strategic targets, resulting in more than 160 of them being damaged or completely destroyed. Like wars, natural disasters, especially hurricanes, have taken a terrible toll on lighthouses. The Great Hurricane of 1938 stands out, both for the extent of devastation it wreaked and for the gripping and tragic stories of survival and death that it left in its wake. At its core, however, the dramatic history of America's lighthouses is about people and an intriguingly diverse cast 
of compelling characters brings that history to vivid life. These include founding fathers, skillful engineers, imperiled mariners, and intrepid soldiers, as well as saboteurs, penny-pinching bureaucrats, ruthless egg collectors, I didn't know there were ruthless egg collectors, and inspiring leaders. Undoubtedly, the most important actors are the male and female keepers, who often with the invaluable insistence of their families, faithfully kept the lights shining and the fog signals blaring. No one who has studied the history of these keepers could claim that their lives were a proverbial picnic, for they contended with loneliness, monotony, and a myriad of dangers. Not surprisingly, a few died in the line of duty. Many keepers rescued people in distress on the water, some performing so heroically that America's highest award for life-saving was bestowed on them. Above all, keepers provided a vital public service that was at once noble and altruistic. The 1900s saw the role of keepers diminish over time. As lighthouses were decommissioned or became automated, the number of keepers dwindled. And today, only Boston Lighthouse, shown here, still has one. And if you're ever going to visit Boston Lighthouse, this is the summer to do it. They just came off a huge renovation. But as keepers faded from view and lighthouses began suffering from neglect, nonprofit organizations, government agencies, and private individuals stepped forward to become the new stewards of an increasing number of lighthouses, ensuring that they will be cared for and preserved for the benefit of future generations. Lighthouses are among the most beloved and romanticized structures in the American landscape. It is not difficult to find evidence of their hold on the public's imagination. Lighthouses are emblazoned on postage stamps and license plates, while legions of artists portray them on their canvases. Many cities and towns incorporate lighthouses into their official seals. And even more businesses and organizations use lighthouses in their logos and advertising. Now this picture, every time it comes up, every talk I've given, there's a murmur in the audience. A lot of you must have a personal association with this, uh, this car way back when, but anyway. Scores of books, movies, and television shows employ lighthouses as subjects, plot elements, or as dramatic settings. And millions of people visit lighthouses every year. The inherent beauty of lighthouses starkly etched against the sky is undeniably a big part of what makes them so alluring. But America's intrinsic fascination with lighthouses goes deeper, runs deeper than that. Over three centuries, these brilliant beacons have indelibly woven themselves into the American fabric, and it is this rich history more than anything else that draws us in. And just to let you know, every single image that I'm showing today is in the book, plus many more. Now, writing a book focuses your mind on what you're working on at the moment. Before I started this book, I never thought about lighthouses. After I started this book, that's all I could think about. I was dreaming about them, and I couldn't believe how many businesses use lighthouses in their logos. Just in my small town of Marblehead, there must be a dozen businesses that have the lighthouse in their logo, and how many people have lighthouse-themed objects in their houses. And although I had driven from my house to the North Shore Mall, hundreds of times, never before had I noticed that five of the houses along the way have four to five foot tall wooden lighthouses on their lawns. Two of them even have light bulbs in the lantern rooms as if they're guiding motorists on their way home. Now, not everybody loves lighthouses. In the midst of the book, I ran across an advertisement for an art competition in Maine, and they had a list of requirements for submission. And the very first requirement said, please, no paintings of lighthouses. <laughs> now, I like lighthouse paintings if they're well done. Uh, this is kind of a wild painting by Jamie Wyeth of the famous Wyeth family. It's called Lighthouse Dandelions. And it depicts Tenant Harbor Lighthouse overlooking Penobscot Bay. And he uses it as a residence and as a studio. Now, I, too, have become one of those people who loves lighthouses, and I even have a few lighthouse-themed objects in my house. Uh, whenever I write a book after I'm done, I try to buy something that reminds me of the book. For Leviathan, A History of Whaling in America, I was naive enough to think that I was going to buy some scrimshaw after I finished the book, 
although the book did very well, it didn't do quite that well. In fact, right when the book came out, uh, the record for a piece of scrimshaw was achieved $325,000. So I had to settle for a wooden sperm whale, which hangs over the front door of our house until today. For Brilliant Beacons, I got a couple of things. One is this. This is a Wedgwood calendar tile from 1918. It was sold in downtown Boston, and it shows Boston light on one side. It's about three by four inches. And on the back, you can see why it's called a calendar tile. You would hang it up by a string through that hole, and you would track the days of the years. And there are people that collect these. There are a whole range of images on them. I got this out at Brimfield. Uh, my son was in search of comic books, and I, I found this. Now, this is in my house. In addition to this tile, I also have an old can of Lighthouse Cleanser. And when my wife purchased our wall calendar for 2016, she got a Lighthouse calendar without telling me. But the last thing, this sort of broke, the, this is a straw that broke the camel's back. This is the lighthouse knocker that I bought for our, our mudroom. And my wife does not like it at all. My kids like it, and I like it, but that's it. This, no more lighthouse stuff for the house. <laughs> now, the most difficult thing about writing this book was deciding what stories and personalities to include. There are well over 1,000 lighthouses that were built in the United States, and they're draped over the East Coast, the West Coast, the Gulf Coast, the Great Lakes, up rivers, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Alaska, and each one of those lighthouses has a story worth telling, but I didn't want to write a book that was 3,000 pages long, which nobody, not even my mother, would read, so I had to cut out a bunch of stories, and I'm going to share two of them with you. The first one, because my wife really liked the story and was saddened when I took it out of the book. It's about the Titanic. After the Titanic was sunk by an iceberg in April of 1912, a lot of people wanted to try to figure out a way to avoid such a catastrophe from ever taking place again. So one concerned citizen wrote to the commissioner of lighthouses with what he thought was a brilliant idea. He urged the commissioner to place lighthouses on all large icebergs so that ships would be warned of impending collision. Not a very good idea. Another story that didn't make it into the text is about a woman who applied to be a lighthouse keeper in the early 1900s. And she wrote in her letter of application a, uh, a list of what she wanted and what she didn't want. And she was very specific. And this is what she said. I don't want it in Southern California where it is hot or where there are fierce storms or bitter cold, but where it is livable with some advantages. A well-paying lighthouse where I could let my youngest girl go to school, where there are certain refinements and nice families for her to know as a growing girl. I want the position the rest of my life as I can't afford to move from place to place, and I get attached to things. I also write stories occasionally for magazines and papers that would like this kind of life, as quiet as necessary to succeed at that. If you have a bit of grass, we could have a garden, some chickens, and a cow. I feel we would give you the most help. Hope there are lobsters and good fishing, but please, no sharks. She was not hired. Uh, so, uh, to give you a, a better idea of the great beauty and diversity of the lighthouses in the book, I'm going to give you a tour through a couple of them. Does anybody know what this 1759 engraving is supposed to depict? Right, the Pharos of Alexandria, which guarded the entrance to the Greek city of Alexandria, located at the mouth of the Nile. And uh, it was built sometime between 297 and 283 BC. And it is considered by most historians to be the first known lighthouse of antiquity. It's also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But just to let you know, different artists have different conceptions of what it looked like because it crumbled after an earthquake in the 14th century. And a lot of the stones are still offshore in the water. And there's even been talk of building a replica sometime in the future. Now, this is a picture of Sandy Hook Lighthouse in New Jersey, shown in a magazine from 1790. It was the fifth lighthouse built in the colonies in 1764. But since all of the lighthouses that were built before it had been rebuilt at least once, Sandy Hook holds the distinction of being the longest continuously operating, the oldest continuously operating lighthouse in the nation. Now, this is Portland Head Lighthouse in Maine. The state's first lighthouse, originally built in 1791, when Maine was part of Massachusetts. 
It was a favorite spot for poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who grew up in Portland. He used to spend a lot of hours chatting with the keepers of the lighthouse, and it's thought that this beautiful lighthouse is the inspiration for a number of his poems that feature lighthouses, and I'm going to read you the opening stanza to one of those poems called The Lighthouse, uh, and here it is. The rocky ledge runs far into the sea, and on its outer point, some miles away, the lighthouse lifts its massive masonry, a pillar of fire by night, of cloud by day. Now, this is the Borden Flats Lighthouse at the mouth of the Taunton River in Massachusetts, and you're not going to believe what it is today, or maybe you will. It is a bed and breakfast, although you have to bring your own breakfast. And don't ask me how you go to the bathroom. I'm not really sure. This is one of the well-appointed rooms in the Borden Flats uh, lighthouse. And there are two rooms, an old keeper's quarter. And here's a Courier and Ives print of the Statue of Liberty in 1885. And what I didn't know, and I bet very few of you did, is that the Statue of Liberty was not only intended to be a welcoming symbol to the weary of the world, it was also meant to be an active lighthouse. And in fact, it served as a lighthouse for a short time before it was decommissioned because it didn't do a very good job. And this is the Hooper Strait Lighthouse in Maryland in 1916. It's called the Cottage-Style Screwpile Lighthouse because it stands on these iron stilts, which are literally screwed. They have flanges at the bottom, sort of screw tip and they're screwed into the sandy or muddy substrate. The problem, these lighthouses were very popular in the Delaware Bay and Chesapeake Bay, the mid-Atlantic. But in the winter, particularly cold winters, large ice flows occur. And when these ice flows come into contact with one of these lighthouses, they tend to shear the lighthouse off at the cottage level. So a lot of these were taken down and replaced by Cason-style lighthouses, like the one at Borden Flats, which are basically iron cylinders filled with cement and rock. Now, this is probably very familiar to you. It's called, often called America's Lighthouse. It's the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse down in North Carolina, the tallest one in the country, 193 feet tall. This is the third Cape Hatteras Tower. It was built in 1870. And, uh, I'm not going to ask you to guess, but when I gave a talk to a bunch of first to third graders down in Cohasset, and I asked them, how many bricks do you think it took to make this lighthouse? And one kid shot up his hand really quick, and he said very authoritatively, two. But it's a lot more than two. It's about a million. So, now, you probably remember that in 1999, this lighthouse was moved 1,500 feet inland from the edge of the ocean to keep it from toppling into the surf. It took a little more than a month to move. It cost about $12 million. They used hydraulics and those rails. They would put soap on them to reduce the friction. But I had an idea before the book came out. There have been about 10 lighthouses moved in the country, and each one of them has been moved by two different companies that work in tandem. So I took an advanced review copy of the book, which is basically a paperback version of the book before it's published, and I sent one to each of the presidents of those two companies. And it was a totally self-serving move. I hoped they would fall in love with the book and buy a copy for every single person in their company. That, unfortunately, did not happen. But they each sent me something. One sent me a letter, but the other sent me a care package. And when I opened it up, there was a T-shirt in it. And the T-shirt had a guy that was a combination between the Incredible Hulk and Mr. Clean. He wasn't green, he was white. And he had his arm like this, rippling muscles, and he was holding the Block Island Southeast Lighthouse here. And with his other arm, he was dragging the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, trudging in sea, in, in, inland. And he also sent me a baseball cap and a bandana that had pirates on it. And he didn't even know that at that very moment, I was working on my next book, which is on pirates. So there's some kind of confluence, I don't know what, there. Now, this is a picture that shows the beams emanating from the Pigeon Point Lighthouse in Pescadero, California. It was originally uh, built in 1872, and every year recently, on the anniversary of its first lighting, they have this photo opportunity. If you could see the foreground of this image, there are probably about 50 or 100 photographers there. They stop the rotation of the Fresnel lens, and they let people take a picture. Now, this lighthouse is open as a hostel. In fact, there are quite a few hostels that are former lighthouses on the West Coast. So if you ever want to take a beautiful bike ride, you can stay at some very interesting places. 
Now, this is a St. George Reef Lighthouse located about six miles off the coast of Northern California. It was finished in 1892. It took about a decade to build. It cost $752,000, the most ever spent on a lighthouse in the United States. Now this is the Minot's Ledge Lighthouse. It was located about nine miles southeast of Boston Harbor and about a mile offshore of Cohasset. There are actually two Minot's Ledge Lighthouses. This is the first one. It was built in 1849, and it's a screw pile lighthouse. If you could see, this is a contemporary engraving. If you could see under the water, there's a ledge about 25, 35 feet wide. They drilled holes into it. They put the legs of this iron skeletal tower into the holes, cemented them in place. But this lighthouse only lasted for two years before, before a nor'easter obliterated it, killing both keepers within. But before they were killed, one of the keepers had time to write a note, a plea for help, basically fearing that the lighthouse was going to topple, put it in a glass bottle, pitched it over the side, and two days later it was found by a Gloucester fisherman. And that note is still in the Situate Historical Society to this day. Now, that lighthouse was gone, but they needed another one in this treacherous spot along the Massachusetts coast. So this is the one that they built. This is the current Minot's Ledge Lighthouse. It was finished in 1860. It's 114 feet high. Those blocks are two and a half to five tons apiece. They're made of Quincy uh, granite and taken to Governor's Island and then brought about a mile offshore. And those lines that are up and down are dowels that are connecting the uh, blocks. And if you could look down from the top, these blocks are connected, they're dovetailed together, almost like a jigsaw puzzle to withstand the furious pounding of the Atlantic. And what some of you may know is that Minus Ledge Lighthouse is known as the lover's light or the I love you light because the characteristic flash that it gives out is one, four, three. One flash darkness, four flashes darkness, three flashes, which corresponds numerically to the phrase I love you. But as someone who worked for the federal government for 10 years, I can guarantee you that the federal bureaucrat that gave it that characteristic flash in 1896 did not have love on his mind when he did so. That was given, some uh, Romeo later gave it that appellation. Now this is Cape Flattery Lighthouse located on Tatouche Island at the, uh, in Washington at the most northwesterly point of the contiguous United States. And a sad keeper in the late 1800s pitched himself off that cliff, but he survived. And the other keepers gathered him up, they brought him to the mainland, put him in a hospital, and then the lighthouse board fired him. <laughs> Obviously not lighthouse keeper material. Does this look familiar to anybody? It's in Maine, yes. Life is like a box of chocolates? Forrest Gump, yes. This is Marshall Point, this is not Forrest Gump, this is Marshall Point Lighthouse in Port Clyde, Maine. And if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, you'll remember that at one point, Tom Hanks becomes a cult-like figure who runs back and forth across the country. This is the eastern terminus of his run. And if you ever go visit the Port Clyde, Light, the Marshall Point Lighthouse, you will see they have a wonderful scrapbook of pictures uh, that show Tom Hanks and the film crew there for two days just to film a five or six second scene. Now this is the Makapuu Point Lighthouse, the top Makapuu Point, Oahu, Hawaii. It's about 400 feet above the water. And this is the absolutely massive Fresnel lens that is in this lighthouse. It's called the Hyperradiant Lens. It's the largest one ever built. There's only one of them in the United States. It stands 12 feet high, weighs 14 tons, and has 1,188 prisms. Now this is a Michigan City East Pierhead Lighthouse in Indiana, overlooking Lake Michigan. And whenever I finish a book, if I've purchased the rights to an image, I send a copy of the book to the photographer. I sent a copy of the book to this photographer, and he wrote me about a month ago, and he said, Eric, I got your book. I'm reading it, I'm enjoying it, but I'm very surprised. When you purchased the rights to this image, I thought you were writing a guidebook to lighthouses or a picture book. I didn't realize that you were writing a book book. So, <laughs> it's 
So it was a book. <laughs> we get that reaction often. No. Now this is a this is a 30 second time exposure image of the Ludington North Breakwater Lighthouse in Ludington, Michigan. And here's one a little closer to us: the New London Ledge Lighthouse, built in 1909. If you saw that on a street in a local suburb, you wouldn't think twice. One of the more stately lighthouses, and like every lighthouse in the country, it seems there is a ghost story associated with this. This one is a, there's a ghost, there's supposedly a guy named Ernie who was a keeper. His wife was cheating on him and he pitched her off the roof of the lighthouse and she died and so she uh, haunts the place. Well, the problem is there's no record of this occurring and there's no record of a keeper named Ernie, but if you go to New London, you will hear the story nonetheless. Now this lantern room uh, picture of the Michigan St. Joseph Pier Lighthouse is from December 2010 and I think it's particularly appropriate in this room because the first time I saw this image I thought it was carved out of marble like these statues that surround you but that is ice a uh, day or two after a storm on Lake Michigan kicked up waves 20 feet high and it's just absolutely gorgeous the guy who took the picture he dubbed this ice beard now here's a picture of a lighthouse that's near and dear to me uh, the Marblehead Lighthouse the original Marblehead Lighthouse. It was built in 1835. It stood only 23 feet tall. If you've been out to Marblehead, it stood at the tip of Marblehead Neck, Neck, Marblehead Neck, right next to the deep and inviting harbor there. Things were fine for about 30 or 40 years. But in the 1860s, a lot of Bostonians came out to the Neck and built what were at the time called summer cottages, which most normal people call mansions. And they blocked the view of the light for the fishermen. And the fishermen started complaining, and the lighthouse board listened to their complaint. They put up that pole behind the lighthouse, and every night they would raise a kerosene lantern to the top of it. But then, <laughs> then that wasn't gonna work too well. So after a couple of years, they decided to build a 100-foot tall brick lighthouse in Marblehead. But at the last moment, they decided to save money. So they built this, which is a skeletal tower, iron skeletal tower lighthouse, which stands there to this day. It is the only such lighthouse in New England. You have to go all the way down to Coney Island to find another similar lighthouse, and then much further down south. I would say about half the people in Marblehead love this lighthouse, and the other half don't. I'm sort of non-committal. Uh, I, I see beauty in it, but if I could go back in time, I would try to convince them to build a brick lighthouse or a stone lighthouse, which would be much more in keeping with uh, New England. i got to tell you a funny quick story. I was on Chronicle a couple of weeks ago, and they filmed part of the show here, and they asked me to walk from the base of the lighthouse towards the camera. And I've, I learned in that effort that I am not a very good walker apparently because the first time that I strolled both the producer and the photographer were looking a little sour and they said you look way too stiff can you go do it again so I went back and I walked again trying to be a little jauntier and they still weren't pleased I had to do it a third time and then finally I guess it was okay because that's what made it into the show <laughs> now this is an image that is really important to me in fact it's the most important image in the book to me and it's a painting of the Edgartown Lighthouse on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, it was done by my daughter, Lily, before she went to college. Uh, she and one of her grandmothers used to go to Newbury Street once every few months and take a painting class from a master painter. And she saw a photograph of this lighthouse one day, did this painting, it's about 18 by 20 inch painting, brought it home, gave it to me, and said, Dad, do you know why I gave you this painting? And I said, because you love me. And she said, nah, I want you to finish this damn book. <laughs> so, so I framed it and hung it in my office, and it worked very well. Uh, now, I really enjoyed writing this book because there were so many fantastic stories to tell. And each chapter could be blown up into its own book. And I just want to tell you a couple of those stories. Uh, my last three books didn't have many female characters. This book does. There were nearly 400 women who served as lighthouse keepers, either principal keepers or assistant keepers. And one of the most interesting was Emily Fish here, who was the keeper at the Point Pinos Lighthouse in Pacific Grove, California. 
She was married to a doctor named Melanchthon Fish, who was very famous in San Francisco. He dropped dead of a heart attack at age 65. She was 50 years old. Her son-in-law was affiliated with the Lighthouse Board. He told her about an opening at this lighthouse for the keeper, and she said, that's just the job I would like to have. She moved in with her Chinese servant, Q, who she had acquired when she lived in China, and she uh, was there for 21 years. And she was known as the socialite lighthouse keeper because when she lived in San Francisco, she threw these lavish parties. And she didn't stop when she went to the lighthouse. And the thing I wish, there's, there's no picture of it, but in descriptions of her life at the lighthouse, one thing really struck, stuck out to me. She had a small herd of black French poodles that would roam the lighthouse. Uh, I just, that image just has stuck with me. Now, her daughter actually became a lighthouse keeper as well. Now, there are entire chapters in Brilliant Beacons on the American Revolution and the Civil War. In fact, those were some of the most fun chapters to write. This was a time at which lighthouses were attacked by the various combatants. Uh, George Washington, who's shown here taking command of the somewhat ragtag Continental soldiers on July 3rd, 1775, personally ordered the attack on Boston Lighthouse and Sandy Hook Lighthouse during the American Revolution. Now, you remember I made sort of a joke about these ruthless egg collectors. Now, why were there ruthless egg collectors? And it has to do with this location. Does anybody know where this is? off the coast of California. If you watch Shark Week, you would know. Anyway, it's the Farallon Islands. There are a lot of great white sharks around it. This is southeast Farallon Island. That point at the top, almost 400 feet high, is the Farallon Island Lighthouse. The keeper's quarters are down in this flat area, and he would have to walk up that zigzag path a couple of times a day to service the lighthouse. But when the gold rush began, in 1849, people rushed out to California to make their fortune. Obviously, most failed miserably. But one thing they forgot to bring with them, in addition to their common sense, was chickens. So they didn't have any eggs. But they wanted to make things that you could make with chicken eggs, so they found a substitute on the Farallon Islands. The common myrrh, this penguin-like bird, used to nest by the millions out at the Farallon Islands. And they would lay these beautiful eggs, which are about the size of a goose egg. And although some people claim that they tasted a little fishy, they were suitable, a suitable substitute for chicken eggs and you know, scrambled eggs or whatever. So, and they were very, very valuable. In the early 1850s, you could get $1.25 for a dozen of these. Now bear in mind, this is a time at which the average lighthouse keeper in the United States only made $400 in an entire year. And these eggers could collect thousands of eggs in a day. So this was big business. And it took nearly 40 years before the federal government was able to evict these eggers from the island, but not before somebody was murdered and a few other people were shot. Now, eggs are not the only avian element to make an appearance in the book. Birds themselves often collide with lighthouses for reasons that are still not completely understood, and I talk about that in the book. And I also talk about the large number of lighthouse keepers who became Audubon wardens, especially in Maine and Massachusetts as well. Uh, they protected the birds from being taken by the plume hunters. If you know your history, you know that around the late 1800s and the early 1900s, uh, the millinery trade loved to use plumage from interesting birds like puffins and others, and terns. And these lighthouse keepers protected the birds from those onslaughts. Now, one of the most dramatic parts of the book details uh, a 30 to 40 year battle during the first half of the 1800s between those who wanted to modernize America's lighthouses and this gentleman, Stephen Pleasanton, the superintendent of lighthouses and accountant who oversaw our lighthouses for nearly 30 years, and he stuck pig-headedly with the inferior lighthouse technologies that we had in the United States. And his accomplice in crime was Winslow Lewis, a gentleman from Wellfleet, who sold his patented technology in 1816, 1815, I think it was, 
to the federal government for $24,000, but the problem was it was far inferior to that that was already being used in France and England, and it wasn't until the 1850s that we finally caught up with the rest of the world. Now, there's an entire chapter in the book on lighthouse heroes, those who risk their lives to save others, and this is probably the most famous of them all, Ida Lewis. She is credited with saving 18 people from drowning. She was the lighthouse keeper at the Lime Rock Lighthouse in Newport, Rhode Island. And in the 1870s and 1880s, she was probably one of the most famous women in the entire country. In a single summer, more than 10,000 people came to visit her just to get a glimpse of her. Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman came by to see her. People would steal things from her keeper's quarters just to have a piece of her. She got numerous wedding proposals, and she was stalked by the first real paparazzi in America. But unlike Kim Kardashian, she did not like the attention, and finally they left her alone, and she was a keeper until she died in the early 1900s. Now, I love this story, especially since we're in a wonderful library right now. These are the libraries that the Lighthouse Board put together, 500 of them, to send to lighthouse keepers at isolated stations to give them a connection to the broader world and some form of entertainment. Now imagine that you're in an isolated lighthouse station and one of these boxes arrives and you would like to read a book. Well, of course, you just grab a book. No, you have to sign the book out first. And then when you're done with the book, you have to sign it back in. There were government regulations that told you exactly what to do. Now, one of the most dramatic stories in the book is about the battle between the Seminole Indians and the two keepers of the Cape Florida Lighthouse in Key Biscayne, Florida, that took place in the summer of 1836. It left one of the keepers dead and the other one nearly so. And this is a modern painting. It'd be kind of cool if it was an old painting. It was the only image I could find of this battle. When I first saw it, I almost didn't use it because it reminds me almost of a Velvet Elvis painting. It's, it's something... Something about it, it's not quite, it's not as beautiful as the paintings you see here. Now, there's a very sad story that occurred at this lighthouse, uh, the Scotch Cap Lighthouse in Alaska. In the early morning hours of April 1st, 1946, this lighthouse was completely destroyed within a matter of seconds, and all five keepers within were killed, and they only found a kneecap and some intestines in the ensuing Days. Now, you're probably wondering, why is he telling us these little things, but not the complete story? And I'm going to tell you why. I've given lots of book talks for my last, you know, last four or five books in particular, and I cannot tell you how many times people come up to me after a talk, and they say, you did such a good job summarizing your entire book that I don't need to buy a copy of your book. <laughs> and the China book, my wife heard somebody say this. So she turned to me after the person left, and she says, Eric, we've got a daughter who needs to go to college in a couple of years. And the next book you write, you are not going to summarize the whole book. So I know this is horrible to say, but if you want to find out the answers to some of these questions, you have to read the book. But sorry. Um, this story, a lot of New Englanders will know about this story. I love this story. The Flying Santa started in 1929 by a pilot out of Rockland, Maine, Bill Winkapaw, who had been, he delivered stuff up and down the Maine coast, and he rescued people at sea. He rescued people at sea, and he had been helped back to the airfield on many occasions by the lights of these lighthouses and the towers themselves. So he wanted to pay back, give thanks to the lighthouse keepers who had helped him so much over the years. So he decided to drop presents on Christmas on these isolated lighthouses so the kids could have presents and their, their parents. And today, this is a continuing project. Uh, but they don't take planes, they take helicopters, and they visit Coast Guard stations up and down the coast. And if you're familiar with Edward Rowe Snow, uh, the bard of New England, I would have loved to have met Edward Rowe Snow. He wrote more than 50 books, including a number on lighthouses. And I've knocked into plenty of people at my talks who, when they were young, they, he would visit their schools, because he was a high school teacher, and give talks. And apparently, he was a real raconteur. I would love to have met him. But he was the Flying Santa for, I think it was four to five decades. Now, one of my favorite stories in the book revolves around the invention of the Fresnel lens and its disbursement throughout the country. This is the first order Fresnel lens at the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. 
and that's the keeper, Yunaka Jeanette, cleaning it. And just yesterday, his grandson called me up, Dr. Arthur Jeanette, and sent me a bunch of pictures of his family, because not only was his grandfather a keeper, there are four or five other members of his family that were keepers going back to the early 1800s. And here is a lantern room and a watch room for a lighthouse that has a first order Fresnel lens. And here's the gentleman who we have to thank for the invention of the Fresnel lens, Frenchman uh, Augustin Jean Fresnel, one of the great geniuses of the 19th century, who unfortunately succumbed to tuberculosis in his late 30s, uh, the number one killer at that time in Europe. Now, in addition to these, there are hundreds of other fascinating stories in the book which are woven together in a narrative that takes you on a reading adventure that spans more than 300 years. But one of the most interesting chapters in the history of America's lighthouses is being written right now, and its roots reach back to the mid-1900s when America's lighthouses were in were going through a period of great change. Many lighthouses were no longer needed for navigational purposes on account of advances in long-range and short-range radar, and they were decommissioned. Other lighthouses were automated, meaning that they no longer had a keeper and uh, they ran all by themselves. The problem was the Coast Guard, which had assumed responsibility for lighthouses in 1939, had a huge mission, limited personnel, and a limited budget. So their goal was to maintain the quality of the light and the fog signal, if there was one. They were less interested in maintaining the towers or the keeper's quarters, so those structures started falling into disrepair. And just at a time when lighthouses were in most jeopardy, help arrived in the form, in the mid-1960s and continuing up to the present, in the form of nonprofit groups, government agencies, and private individuals who have stepped forward to become the stewards of America's lighthouses. This is East Brother Lighthouse. It's near San Francisco. It was built in 1871, and today it is run by a nonprofit as a bed and breakfast. And if you decide to stay here, they'll pick you up by a boat, they'll take you to the island, give you champagne, put chocolate on your pillow, and give you a tour of the lighthouse, and it will only cost you $375 to $425 a night. And somebody in my talk just the other day spent a few nights at this lighthouse and said it was a wonderful experience. Now, this is the Fire Island Lighthouse on Long Island. It was saved from demolition by the Fire Island Preservation Society. Now, the federal government got into lighthouse preservation in a big way in 2000 when it passed the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act. And basically what this act does is any lighthouse that the Coast Guard deems is no longer necessary for its central mission, it can be transferred free of charge to a nonprofit or government agency. Um, when there are no applicants, it can be auctioned off to the highest bidder. Now, under this act, nearly 73 lighthouses have been transferred to nonprofit groups or to uh, government agencies. At the same time, there have been sales of 41 lighthouses to private individuals. And I just want to mention one thing. Before this talk, I wandered around, and there's an exhibit in that corner on the first floor which has some maritime etchings, and one of them is an etching that was based on this painting. Just happened to notice that. Now, the prices paid in these auctions have varied widely. The cheapest sale thus far was for $10,000. It was the Cleveland Harbor East Breakwater Lighthouse and, uh, over on Lake Erie. The most expensive is very close to here, and you probably read about it in the Globe or some other paper. It's the Graves Lighthouse, which is located beyond the mouth of Boston Harbor towards Nahant, and it sold a few years ago for $934,000 to a couple in Brookline, and they are doing an absolutely wonderful job renovating this lighthouse. And bear in mind, just to get in the front door, you have to climb a 40-foot ladder. They've hired furniture makers, I've been told, that are even making furniture with rounded backs, so it maximizes the use of this conical space. Now, it's a great time to learn more about lighthouses and to visit them. Of the nearly 700 lighthouses still standing in the United States, almost half of them can be visited. In many instances, you can climb the tower or visit the small museum that will tell you a little bit about the history of the lighthouses. Now, for three centuries, 
lighthouses of illuminated America's shores. They and their dependable keepers have done a wonderful job protecting ships, cargo, and the personnel of people traveling on those ships. The success and growth of the American economy could not have been achieved without these lighthouses. So I think it's very appropriate after all of those years of selfless service that to us, we now are turning around and in many instances are becoming the new keepers of lighthouses to preserve them for future generations. And before I finish up, I want to tell you a couple of quick uh, stories. Uh, one is a pun, a really bad pun. If you read this book, it'll be an illuminating experience. Somebody, somebody in one of my talks told me, I, ha I actually signed a book the other day that said to so-and-so, a little light reading. So anyway, uh, but one of the best stories, well, I'll tell you one more story about signing a book. I was at the Stanford Yacht Club about two months ago, and a woman came up, and she's giggling. And she's with her boyfriend. She goes, I know exactly what I want you to say in this book. She said, so it's dearest, dearest Elaine, you mean so much to me. I couldn't have written this book without you. Love, Eric. So I turned to the bookseller who was sitting next to me, and I said, should I write that? And she said, I don't know. It's your book. So I wrote it. And I got to tell you, later that night when I went home and I told my wife that story, she was not amused. And one more story, about two weeks ago, I was in Cohasset, and they love their lighthouse. And I gave five, one, two, three, four, I gave five talks, I think in two days, in Cohasset. And one of the talks was to 400 third to fifth graders. And after the talk, yeah, I learned, you don't ask third to fifth graders a question. 300 hands go up. Uh, so after the talk, a third grader came up and she said, I want one of your books. And I said, one of them has been donated to your library. She goes, no, I, I want one. I want to I buy one. I said, well, they, they cost money. And there were like 200 people watching me while this transaction is going on. I said, well, they, they cost some money. And she goes, well, I have $2. I said, well, it's a little more than that. She goes, how about I give you the $2 now, and I'll give you the rest when I'm an adult. <laughs> And then, and then I, I was laughing so hard. And then she grabbed one of my business cards and she hands it to me. And she said, if I give you this, will you give me a discount? <laughs> uh, I don't know what she's going to be when she grows up, but it's going to be something. Um, but anyway, thanks for coming. I'm happy to answer any questions you might have.